there are so many people here that I know from Southwood, and to the person, um, in some way, you have ministered to my family individually, and um, and a lot of our hurts and a lot of the things that have gone on in our families, and and so it's just good to be here. These are friends, and you guys are my friends, and so just glad to be here, glad to bring you God's word, and. Um, what I want to do to kick things off is I'm going to read the passage that is sort of the main passage I'll be preaching on, but you got to understand I'm kind of all over the place this morning with this, and, um, and hopefully I'll be able to go slow enough where you'll follow along with me. But um, the, the primary passage that God um, has been working on my heart for a long time, and this is really me just trying to think out loud with you guys to think through what does it mean to be part of a church? I mean, what does it mean that we um, you know, are here because God called us to be here? What does it mean that we're going to go and be ministers out uh, to this neighborhood? And what does it mean to, to love Jesus enough to go give things away to other people? And so let me read to you the passage that's just been, God's been working on my heart. And uh, it's from um, Mark 8, starting in verse 34. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 34. This is God's written word. And he called, that's Jesus, called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, wants, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the written word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, um, you are here now among us. Your Holy Spirit is filling our souls. And Father, uh, I pray your Spirit would open our eyes and that our hearts would be receptive to hearing your word. And, Father, change me as a result of going over these, this passage again and thinking through how you lead each one of us and how you call us to be your hands and feet in a world that is dark and needs the truth, needs the gospel, needs the joy and the peace and the rest that is ours through Jesus Christ, the finished work of our glorious Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, here's the deal. I want to start off with a story, but I have to be real honest. It's a joke. I mean, it is. Okay, so it sounds better as a story because that's how you start off preaching. You, you tell a story, not a joke. But here it is, okay? Uh, it is the story of a man who was shipwrecked on a desert island for 20 years. So this castaway is there all by himself until one day a ship sees the smoke from a fire and rescues him. And so the captain of the ship is on the beach with this castaway, and the captain is saying to this castaway, he says, look, uh, you've been here 20 years. I've noticed you've built three structures. Would you tell me about them? What's this first one? And the castaway says, oh, that's, that's my house. That's where I live. That's, that's my house. And the captain says, well, what's the second structure? And the castaway goes, well, I'm a Christian, and that's my church. That's the church I go to. I love my church. I go to that church. That's my church. And the captain says, well, what's this third structure? And the castaway says, oh, that. That's the church I used to go to. 
Okay. I love that story. I love that joke. Because it has a lot of meaning. Because I think that all of us, no matter what's going on, we ask the question, you know, why here? I mean, why are you here in this church? I know the stories of many of us here. Uh, you've left churches to come here because God called you, right? And there are some folks here right now that uh, are, met other people, at, go to this church, and they've been invited to come here. And, uh, and those of us that may have been followers of Christ for a long time, we have our stories of the church that we used to go to, you know, until they started doing that, and we walked away. And so we all have that story, but we are asking ourselves all the time, well, why are we doing what we do? I mean, why are we here? Why, are we, uh, why have we attached ourselves to Village Church? Why this time, and why now? What's going on, and how do I stay energized? How do I stay focused on what God's called me to so I don't become petty and go, that's that church I used to go to. So how do we maintain that? Well, let me start off by saying this, too. Or Let's take you back to the desert island. Let's go back to that desert island for a second. But this time, you've lived there all your life. That's all you know. This is not a joke, by the way. Uh, all you've known is this a desert island. And in fact, all you've had to read your whole life is God's Word in the Bible. And so you've read this all your life. And so let me ask you a question. If this is all that you had to guide you, if God's Word was all that you had to guide you, what would your expectation be for the church? I mean, think about it for a minute. What would you expect the church to do? And let's imagine that you came off of that desert island and you, all you had was this to guide you and you showed up to Huntsville and you were going to start a church and all you had was this to guide you. Would it look like this? And i got to tell you, I don't have the answers. I mean, would it look like a church? Would we gather like this on Sunday or would we do something totally different? Believe me, I, this is what I do. This is what God's called me. I've been doing this for 10 years, and I often say, well, what is the church? I mean, what, is it really supposed to look like this? Is this how we to gather together? I don't have the answers, but it's worth thinking about because you guys, we've all been called to do something amazing for God. We've been called out of something into something to be his hands and feet in this world. So we have to ask the question, if this is all we had to guide us, would it look like this? Now, there's a gentleman by the name of Thomas Leinecker, he was the doctor for Henry VIII. That means he lived in the 1600s. And he lived in the 1600s, and they didn't have Bibles readily available like we do now. I mean, we'd go to Walmart and get a Bible, but during this time, you just, you just couldn't get a hold of a copy of the Bible. And if you did, it was probably written in a language you couldn't read, maybe Latin, or maybe the original language of Greek for the New Testament and Hebrew for the Old. And so very few people had Bibles and could read them. Thomas Leinecker was the physician for Henry VIII. He was a learned man. He could read Greek. And so some, one day, he got a copy of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He started to read it for himself in the original Greek. He read them cover to cover, and he returned them back to the guy that gave it to him. And he said, man, listen, either these are not the Gospels, or we are not Christians. He saw this huge disconnect between the teachings of Jesus and the way he was acting the way he was living, he saw this huge disconnect between what the Scripture says Jesus said and the way the church was acting even. Listen, I dare to say that we, there's a huge gap even now in the church between what Jesus teaches and the way the church acts and is. And I want to you know some answers. I want to know how we fix that. Um, just recently, I've been reading a, a book Imagine that, a pastor reading a book. My gosh. Uh, but I was reading a book, 
And uh, there was a quote. And in fact, I was having lunch with Alex, Alex Shipman, your pastor. And he and I were having lunch, and I was sharing with him. And I said, this was a couple of weeks ago, and I said, Alex, I ran across this quote. Tell me what you think about it. The quote was, the purpose for the church. It says, the purpose for the church was to, is to mobilize a people to accomplish a mission. The purpose of the church is to mobilize a people to accomplish a mission. And Alex, your wonderful, wise pastor, he said, he said, Bill, I like that. I like the second half. I don't like the first half. He said, I would change the word mobilize to disciple. And so Alex is helping me here. And he said, here's how I would say it. The purpose of the church, he may deny this when he comes back. So <laughs> I don't know. But I like it. I said, I think you're right, Alex. But he said this. He said, the purpose of the church is to disciple a people to accomplish a mission. That Alex, at least in our conversation, says, you know, I see this. God brings people, and my job is to disciple this people to accomplish a mission. I love that. I think that's right. Because we often wonder, what is the church for? Now, Jesus teaches us many times in many ways, what is a disciple? And in our passage in Mark chapter 8, he says that the, perp- the disciple is somebody who denies himself, right? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save his life. For what does it profit anyone if they gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul, forfeit their life? And then he went on to say at the very end of this, he says essentially this, I'm going to return And whoever is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him. So Jesus is making this strong connection between self-denial. If you can't deny yourself, if you can't go and live for someone else, if you can't give up everything to follow him, it's the same thing as being ashamed of him. That's staggering. It's the same thing as being ashamed of him. If you can't let go of anything to follow him, so the purpose of the church is to disciple a people to let go of stuff and to, to run after him. One of Jesus' disciples, uh, the, the Apostle uh, John, in one of his letters, 1 John chapter 2, said it this way. He said, whoever abides in Jesus. Now, that would be another way of saying whoever says they're a Christian. Or in this case, whoever says they go to village church. If you say village church is my church, these are my people here, we're going to reach this whole area for Christ. Whoever says that, John says, ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. You ought to walk in the same way Jesus walked. Now, for me, what I think of immediately is I go right to the thing, some of the, way, some of the imagery that Jesus left for us. The main one that I think of is when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, right? He's about to go and die. And he has this opportunity to leave these really quick vignettes for his people, his followers, and says, I want you to remember me this way. And so he goes and washes the feet of his disciples. Now, in that culture, what's going on there is Jesus is taking the lowest position in that culture. Only the lowest of all servants would take that and job and do it. So what Jesus is saying to us as we read the Gospels, because either these are the Gospels or we are not Christians, he is saying you have to let go of any status that you think is important and take the lowest status in any culture you're in. Be willing to do that. Now, I'm talking to a room full of people who have done that. So I'm preaching to the choir because I'm going to tell you something that partly why I believe that God would lead me to preach this this morning is because I think some of us need to be reminded. Just be, We need to be reminded why we're here. Some of us need to be encouraged. Just a little nudge. You're getting a little discouraged, maybe a little distracted. 
you need a little nudge. Some of us need to be challenged. And frankly, some in this room need to be called to come become part of Village Church, to reach others in this area and do amazing things for God. So we're going to look at Scripture. And Scripture begins to tell us we must deny ourselves. John says, "Abide." if you say you abide in Him, walk like He walked. So we, there's no status. There's nothing that's beneath any of us to do. Now, anybody read Donald Miller, uh, Blue Like Jazz? It's a book that's come out. And Donald Miller is an, an author. He's ironic. He's sarcastic. He's serious and funny, all in the same sentence. He wrote a book. Um, it's called uh, God, uh, Searching for God Knows What. And he tells the story in here about a gentleman trying to explain to somebody what it means to convert to Christianity. And he says, converting to Christianity is like, not unlike wanting to sit in a chair. We've all heard, maybe heard this illustration before. But it's about placing your faith in Jesus. It's like saying, you know, I believe this chair will hold me up if I sit in it. We don't exercise our faith until we really sit in it, right? And so uh, Donald Miller says this. He said, um, I wondered as I heard this if the chair was a kind of symbol for Jesus and how irritated Jesus might be if a lot of people kept trying to sit on him. And then he said, I wondered at how Jesus could say he was the shepherd and we were his sheep. How he could say, I'm the bridegroom and you're the bride. How he could say, we have a father in heaven and you're his children. How he could say, I'm the king and you're my subjects. And then he wondered uh, somehow that we are missing the meaning and thought becoming a Christian was like sitting in a chair. And so here, many of us just sit Boy, I see. I want you to know right now, I'm imagining myself on the front row, and I'm preaching to myself too. Here we sit. Either these are not the Gospels, or we are not Christians. Either the words of Jesus are absolutely false, or we are not Christians. So we are called not to sit. What will, what will it take to wake many of us up? What's it going to take? Willing to give up anything for Jesus and to be on His mission. I think a big part of it, though, is that um, I think we just real, don't realize how ineffective that many of us are. I speak for myself, certainly. Because when we read the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, he says, this is what it means. This is what it means for him to be on mission. We proclaim Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all His energy which so powerfully works in me. Now how can we hear that and not think? Either this is not God's Word or we are not Christians. Because He takes words like, um, uh, to this end I struggle. To this end I labor. And the word labor is a word that would be used to describe a farmer on a farm. They were tilling land and sweating and in the sun. He's working the land. And that's what he does. He labors. And the word struggle is used to describe a Greek athlete in competition. And so they're working to do this, to accomplish amazing things. And they're out there working. No one is sitting. We're working to accomplish this incredible mission that Jesus has us on. We labor to do this. And so um, just like there's that line from that movie, there's no crying in baseball. Remember that line? There's no crying in baseball. There's no sitting in following Jesus. I got a big fat rear end from sitting too much, people. That's the truth. 
There's no sitting because if this are, these are these are not the gospels or we are not Christians. Either this is not God's word or I am not a believer. And so, let's think about this. Here's what we're called to be. We're called to take the lowest position in our culture. There's nothing that's beneath us. Uh, every ounce of your being is to labor and struggle to make Jesus famous. If we really understood who Jesus was, we would give up anything, anything we think of value, and take those resources and use them to be Jesus to hurting and lonely people. And we would daily die to self. And the great commandment to love God with all your everything and your neighbor as yourself would be exactly what we do all the time. We would labor and struggle to do that. Because either these are not the Gospels or we are not Christians. Now, um, very few of us get this. There are things I struggle to get this. Let me tell you what keeps me down. This is the thing that really keeps me from understanding this. It's a simple word, discontent. Have you ever been discontent? I'm just sort of just discontent with life and just feel like there's something better and you're looking around. Discontent. You know where discontent shows up? It shows up in circumstances and situations that you're in. And so there could be things that are going on in your life and you become very discontent. Uh, Jerry Bridges, a Christian author, listed out some things that are circumstances that get us discontent. He said it shows up in things like this. An unfulfilling or low-paying job. In our culture, it's a no-paying job. And so there's just this sort of feeling that nothing's ever really being accomplished because i got such a low-paying job. Uh, there's other things. There are some of us who are single again. Maybe that we were married once and now we're single. And there's some of us that have been single all of our lives. We're in middle age and now we're, we're wondering... Are we ever going to meet somebody? And, or are we ever going to meet someone again? And so we become discontent. There are some of us that um, want children but can't. There are some of us that have physical disabilities that just keep us down. There are chronic and ongoing poor health. And then this is the biggie. This is really something that gets to me too. We start to look around. And everybody else is living the life I want. You know, we, we look around and there's that gated community with shiny, happy people behind all that, and that's what I want. And we say, they have a better life, and I wish I had that life, you know? I, just have, I have 200 more square feet in the house, or just a house, a car. We become very discontent. With me, I look around at other pastors, other churches, other ministries, and it's sickening because it keeps me in my chair. I'm sitting on Jesus. I've been, I've been given the greatest news Gospels, and I sit, and I become discontent. It slows us down, and so we become ineffective in the kingdom because of discontentment. Uh, Sherry and I, we've got, um, Sherry's my beautiful wife, my smoking hot wife, by the way, I must say. I must say. And we, our youngest, will be 14 next birthday, and that's in January. And so uh, we have an 18-year-old and a soon-to-be 17-year-old. And so, like, we should be done reading books on parenting, you know? <laughs> you know, if I, when I meet Dr. Dobson, I could just, you know, just say, I'm so sick of you and your books. But um, we continue to read some books on parenting. The latest one we're reading is uh, it's called How Children Raise Parents by Dan Allender. Good book. He said in there there was something really helpful. He said that our kids are asking two questions all the time. It's, it's underneath everything. It's two questions. Am I loved? And can I get my way? <laughs> Isn't that true? Think about it. Now, here's what good parents are supposed to say. Yes to the first one, no to the second one. Yes, you're loved, and no, 
And I'm going to say, I'm going to put something else before no. Heck no, but not even heck. <laughs> no. That's good parents are supposed to do that. Well, as Sherry and I read the book, I, I think it was she, she brought it up to me. She said, you know what? This is how we are with our Father in heaven. We want to know the answer to this question all the time. Do you love me? Am I loved by you? And am I going to get my way? <laughs> Isn't that the same question all the time? And where's it? it shows up in discontentment. You must not love me because look at my life. Look at my circumstance. I want my way. I want to live there. I want that life. I want that person. I want their things. And so we struggle with that. And so either these are not the Gospels or we are not Christians because Jesus doesn't promise us at all a life of comfort and ease. It's not part of it. Now, what we do, and I told you, did I tell you I was going to be all over the place? I told you, and I'm going to tie it all, tie it all together. That's my promise to you, okay? <laughs> but here's the deal. When we are discontent, and it starts to weigh us down, and we become ineffective in the kingdom, essentially being just staying seated, and we don't get up and do the things that God's called us to, the mission he's called us on, what we're doing is we're doing the same thing that non-believers do. See, non-believers don't factor God into their lives, right? By, by definition, they don't. They don't bring God into their situation. And so when we don't do that, our circumstances start to push us down. But what we factor God in, because we're asking, do you love me? Of course he loves you. Am I going to get my way? No. See, the purpose of the church is to disciple a people to accomplish a mission. See, it's not an engagement on our calendar. It's not Saturday cookout, check. Sunday church, check. Throw in some good manners and I'm a good Christian. That's not right. See, we're always asking, am I loved? Will I get my way? Romans 8, 28 and 29 tells us the answer. Yes, you're loved because God is working together all things for your good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. So am I loved? Yes, he's working all things for your good. In this circumstance, yes. This low-paying job, this no job, yes. This, this difficult marriage I'm in, yes. My health issues, yes. The things God has given me, assignment, my addictions, all of those things, he's working it together for good, yes. He's called you to a purpose, and that purpose is in verse 29. It says that from the very get-go, he predestined us. There's that P word. Right? He predestined us. He foreknew, he predestined us to be made into the image of his son, verse 29, to be conformed to the likeness of his son. So what keeps us stuck in our chairs? Discontentment. We look around. We want other people's lives. God says, no, this is the life I've given you. I love you. The purpose for this situation you're in is to make you look like Jesus. And when you look like Jesus, you can go out into the community and you have something to offer, not yourself, but Jesus. Because the truth of the matter is, the, either this is, these are not the Gospels. This is not the truth of God, or we are not believers. Does he love us? Yes. Will he get my way? No. You will get his purpose. But how do we get to that place where we want what he wants? Where we want to serve this community with no strings attached? You know, not to that place where, you know, I came here to do something amazing for God, and it's just not happening I think I'm done. I just want to go back to wherever it is I came. How do we stay focused? How do we stay jazzed about what God's doing in our lives? How do we do it? What, what do we do? How do we, how do we live out, all out for God and not feel like you're, gonna, you're actually missing something? See, when Jesus washes the feet, people, you, you've got to give up a status to go down here. And when you're down here, you're thinking, man, it was so much better up here and I'm really missing something. So how do we stay energized? How do we stay encouraged? 
How do we remain challenged? And then how do some of you get called into this work? All right, let me just go. I'm going to go out a little ways and then come back. Um, anybody read Pilgrim's Progress? The Pilgrim's Progress. That's an old book, 350-year-old book. Awesome book. I, always, I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Um, but if you ever read it, don't get an old version. It's written in old English. It's like the Shakespeare stuff that I can't understand. Get a good English translation of it, a modern tra- translation of it. John Bunyan wrote it. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a picture of the Christian life. There's a character, his, guy, his name is Christian. Great name for a guy that's a Christian, right? And you just follow him in his life. And he starts off living in a place called the City of Destruction. And it's a picture of where all of us started out. City of Destruction. In the City of Destruction, it's all about us. It's about what we want. And when we first meet Christian, he's got a burden on his back, and it's his sin. And he doesn't know what to do with it. He's tried um, looking for things um, for himself. He's been discontent, and so he tries things and people. And he's got this huge burden on his back. And then we see him on his way to the celestial city. And as he's going through all his um, uh, challenges and things, um, he meets people. And they ask him the same two questions all the time. Where have you come from? Where are you going? Where have you come from? And tell me, where are you going? And what that tells us is that we've got to remember where we've come from and where we're going all the time. We have come from the city of destruction. In the city of destruction, it was about me. And now I'm living a life where it's about him. Because I'm on my way to see him, to the celestial city where the king lives. And so the whole story is just this long story, and it's amazing. All these different characters, all these difficulties. He falls out of the way. He chooses a different way many times. He, he does things in his own power, and he falls and trips and stumbles. Now, the part I'm going to tell you about is the very end of the story. He's getting real close to the celestial city. So as a reader, you're thinking, ah, oh, this is a guy at the end of his life. He's, he knows he's going to die. And so here is Christian, and he's got a friend that he met, a guy named Hopeful. And they're in this land called Beulah. They're in a land called Beulah. And from this land, they can see the celestial city real clear. You know what that tells us? That the afterlife, the place where he's going, is becoming more real to him. So it's more real where he's going. But it says in this land also that they renewed the covenant with Jesus. Now the interesting thing about that is they're in a land called Beulah. And Beulah is from Isaiah 62. And Beulah is a word that means married. And so when you read Isaiah 62, you see a couple of things. And all of that passage in uh, Pilgrim's Progress is from Isaiah 62. It says in Isaiah 62 that once you were forsaken, but now you're my delight, God says. You were once forsaken, now you're my delight. But then also in Isaiah 62 it says you were once desolate all by yourself, but now you're married, you're Beulah. And so we're re- I'm reading this part of, the, of, of Pilgrim's Progress. And I got to thinking, well, why do we have to wait to the end of our life for this to be real to us? Where we think about the celestial city and Jesus and, and, and we renew the covenant often. We think about what Jesus has done for us. Why do I have to wait towards the end of my life? Now, here's the thing I want you to pick up on. I told you I'm all over the place, but I'm going to pull this together, Okay. Here's the thing, when you're in the land of married and you're renewing the covenant with Jesus, the agreement, the thing that Jesus did for us, the covenant, we immediately think of the cross, that Jesus lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserved. 
If you're in the land of Beulah, the land of marriage, and you're renewing the covenant, that must mean that was your engagement day. See, I don't want to just relive the covenant and think about the things Jesus has done for me towards the end of my life. I want to do it every day. And if you're going to stay at Village Church and continue to do the work that God's called you to, we must renew the covenant all the time. Think about where you've come from and where you're going. So I thought about the engagement day. And it's hot in this room right now, right? Um, when, uh, when Sherry and I got engaged, I was, uh, she had just graduated high school. I had been in college two years. I came home that summer to work construction to buy her a ring. She was going to go to the same school I was, and I had to brand her before she got down there somehow. <laughs> or I was going to lose her. All right? But I loved her, and I wanted to get engaged. I had to make money. So I worked construction one summer in the heat of Huntsville, Alabama, I worked construction, and I was the low man on the totem pole. I was, the, I was the guy that had to make all the runs to go do stuff, clean up stuff. Sherry, um, she remembers, I would come home covered with mud. Um, I did all the menial tasks. I dug ditches. I, um, I got electrocuted one time and I grabbed some wires. And there was a guy named Udi. I don't know, maybe some of you guys know him, but his name was Udi. And he actually lived in Arab, and he would drive his red Maverick over the river and come to work because we worked on some apartments near here. And um, he was the guy that teased me, made fun of me, maybe do stuff. He just totally ride me, rode me the whole time. And he would make me make runs to Utotem. Everybody remember Utotems here in Huntsville? Yes, okay. I would have to go make runs for him. And he, the first time he told me what he wanted, I thought he was going to kill me. Because I didn't understand a word he said. He said, I want seven up cup ice. I said, what? Seven up cup ice. I don't know, what, what do you want? Seven up cup ice. Well, it turns out what that is, is I want a seven up with a cup of ice. <laughs> so I would have to go do that. Well, here's the point. Yeah, that engagement. When I gave Sherry the ring towards the end of summer, and it was a little ring, a little diamond, tiny. Um, she was worth it. She was worth everything that I put up with. All the teasing, all the mud, the electrocution, <laughs> everything. So we relive the our engagement day, and we look at Jesus. What did he endure to come rescue us? What did it cost him to call us to himself? What did he give up? He gave up the throne room of heaven. He emptied himself, took on flesh, suffered under the, the law, but living it perfectly, being accused in our place. And then upon the cross, he was separated from the Father. All that he endured for you and I. And so one, one little project I'm going to give you, and I'm going to wrap this up. Next time you're at a wedding, okay? You know how everybody stands up and looks at the bride? When everybody stands up and looks at the bride, I want you to look back at the groom's face. I want you to look at the groom's face. I do that. When I'm officiating, I kind of do this. I look over. Or if I'm out in the uh, congregation, I'm one of maybe a few people that are looking the other way. Because I want to see his face. Because his face, he sees his bride. And his face lights up. And the anticipation and the joy. So beautiful. Anybody looks great in a wedding dress. But, I mean, but especially someone we love. And so there's that sense... Well, you know what? When we go our face-to-face with Jesus, and we look into His face, 
we get a hint of what that's like when we look into the face of a groom. Because when we look into the face of Jesus, we are people that we know we've come from the city of destruction. We know who we are. We're messed up. We're unqualified people. We're, we're forsaken, but now we're loved because we belong to Jesus. And so we answer the question, am I loved? Yes. I think of the engagement day. What did he do to come after me? Yes, I am loved. Then, then giving up something is not that hard to do in light of that. So yes, I'm loved. I look at the cross, the day of engagement. I look at the great cost. And so will I get my way? A disciple doesn't want his way. I don't want my way. I want Jesus' way. See, we have looked into the face of Jesus, our bridegroom, and we've gotten out of our chairs, and we want what he wants. We want his mission for the world. To be Jesus, to be made into His image under your current circumstance, to not to be discontent, but to be made into His image, to go be Jesus to a lost world, to the lonely, the needy, the difficult neighbors, this city, this block, you know, everything north of Oakwood and south of Oakwood and all over here, to the hurting. God wants you to look like Jesus. And see, discontent is standing in our way. But we're to look up and bring God back into the equation. Look up into the face of the one who gave up everything to be with you and know where you're going. I'm from the city of destruction. I'm going to a wedding. And you're there. And everything, and anything that you've sacrificed, anything you gave up, anything you denied yourself, it doesn't matter then when you're staring into the face of Jesus. And so it doesn't matter now. You see, either these are the Gospels or we are not Christians. So in light of that, let's don't sit. Let's be made into the image of Jesus. And with reckless abandon, go and be Jesus. You're not going to miss anything. You're not giving up anything. Because you will stare in the face of the one who made you. And you talk about contentment. Let's pray and let's meditate on what God has shown us this morning. Father, you're so good. If anyone would come after you, we must deny ourselves. Pick up our cross and follow you. But we renew the covenant. We think about our engagement day. And so we can't sit anymore. You've called us to be free and with reckless abandon to go and be made into your image. Uh, to, to live all out for you. You've called us to take the lowest position without fear that we'll miss out on something. We'll never miss out on anything. Because we've come from the city of destruction and we're on our way to a wedding in the celestial city to be married to our King, to be in His presence. Father, that's glorious. Father, make that truth alive in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. Is there any music?